0: Thank you, Steve, for that welcome, and thank you for the invitation to speak here. Actually, the thought of speaking here was first introduced to me last year when I was having a conversation with Joe Sierra. I've known Joe over quite a few meetings, over quite a few years, and he came to me last year and said, you know, it's going to be in Minnesota. That's not too far from your home in Wisconsin. Yeah, and we're going to need some speakers, and I said... So what you're saying, uh, Joe, is that you need somebody that's got a story to tell and who's willing to tell it. And he looked at me and said, "You mean somebody who's grandiose as all get out, but also very people pleasing?" And I said, "Yeah, that's about right." He said, "Will you speak?" Sure. That's what brings me here today. Um, I'm Scott. I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. In the course of my uh, using career, um, I've been through four inpatient rehabilitation treatments, got fired from two jobs, got uh, disciplined and suspended by the medical examining board, spent 13 months of my time on the grounds of some psychiatric or alcohol uh, rehab institution, got to be on TV twice, um, yet came out the other end of it, and uh, I'm here to tell you about that today. Um, if there were a title or a theme for this, perhaps it would be, Why Can't Scott Get Sober? Uh, fortunately, people stopped asking that question a few 24 hours ago, but uh, for a long time it seemed like uh, the active question in my life. Um, basically, I started out as a child, which isn't that unusual.
1: Um, <laughs>
0: I wasn't the typical child that would be set up for uh, suspected of being an alcoholic or a drug addict in years to come either. Uh, I was a child of the late 50s, but I was given unconditional love by both of my parents. There was no alcohol or drug abuse going on in my primary family or even in my extended family that I was particularly aware of. And uh, I had a lot of people that uh, cared for me and showed me that they cared for me in my uh, early years and in my later life too. Yet despite all that, I remember from a very early age, always having a lot of uh, concerns about the future, a lot of fear that I was not going to be able to handle the challenges that were ahead of me, Uh, uncertainty about the future, general anxiety about how I was going to manage to be okay with this whole process of growing up and eventually becoming an adult. And uh, I remember worrying about that a lot. Even as young as five or six, that was always an issue to me. Um, How was I going to cope with these challenges ahead? And I found things in my life that were pleasurable and uh, gave me some relief from those anxieties. I liked to read a lot. I became a bookworm. Uh, I found I enjoyed eating too. It was a good way to uh, feel good for a while early on being a good student and being diligent about those kind of things was a great way to feel good about myself and a great way to help uh, put a lot of those fears at rest and uh, to feel some comfort and feel some uh, release from that. And it was really in that state of mind um, that I had my first encounter with uh, a mood-altering drug. At that time, I was living with my parents in Indiana. I was an only child. Ninth or 10th grade, I think it was, about the age 14. And um, I hadn't been particularly enjoying my life or my adolescence up to that point. It seemed fairly stressful. I was a bit of a loner, as I said, with a lot of anxiety, self-doubt, all that kind of thing. When I was home from school one day with a bad case of bronchitis, I was basically just coughing my head off. And I think my mother got tired of listening to me, and she gave me a dose of cough syrup. I didn't know what it was or what to expect from it. But all of a sudden, after I had taken it, it was like this magic switch had been thrown in my brain. All of a sudden, all the fear, all the anxiety, all the stress, all the worries went away, just like that. And suddenly I knew on a real, real fundamental level that I was going to be okay and life was going to be wonderful. That was what happened when Codeine was put in my system. It felt just like a wonderful hug from God. And I even mentioned it to my mother at the time. Wow, you know, this stuff makes me feel pretty good. Can I have some more? And no, you you know, this is medication. You don't use it for that purpose. Oh, okay. I was kind of sad to hear that, but. I was a, I was an obedient child, at least at that point in my life, and uh, the medication went back into the refrigerator and didn't get pulled out again, and I knew where it was, but I never touched it, went back for more or anything like that, I just went about my life, things hadn't changed too much, and it was shortly after that time that I had my first experience with alcohol. I was still about 14 or 15 my dad was having an office party he was the boss and he invited all of his employees to our house to have a big old party in the basement where he had a bar and a wreck area and I had done some part-time work at his office and so they knew me as the boss's kid and it was there that my dad decided that uh, you know he was going to teach me how to drink and he gave me a little bit of a tia maria on ice and uh, I had not had experience with alcohol prior to that but I drank it down and Suddenly I felt a lot of those same inhibitions dissolving away, and all of a sudden I was laughing with the other people there and having a good time. Next thing I know, I'm cleaning up their unfinished drinks that have been set down on the corner tables and things like that, Um, which they thought was hysterically funny, seeing the boss's kid doing that. Um, My dad caught me at it and cut me off pretty quickly and uh, sent me uh, away from the party. But that memory stays with me very strongly, too. My uh, contact with two of my favorite drugs of choice came very early on, and uh, they both had very memorable uh, effects upon me, and I carried those with me ever after. Even so, I didn't start haunting my parents' liquor cabinet or things like that. Um, I did have a bit of a headache the next day and decided, okay, you know, I'm not ready for more of that right now, but boy, I sure remember how good it made me feel. so I plodded my way through my high school career, and I still got most of my gratification from achievement, and then I discovered girls, or a particular girl, and I decided that I was going to kind of pursue that single-mindedly to make myself feel better about myself, and, and uh, I succeeded there uh, pretty well, too. In fact, that girl's sitting right over there, and we just celebrated our 25th anniversary the other month, but... Um, that was uh, my chief pursuit back then in high school. I didn't pay a whole lot to the drinking crowd or the drugging crowd or things like that. It just wasn't a big part of my existence. I was pretty goal-oriented, and I knew what I wanted to do. And What I wanted to do was go to a good college and, and get into a good medical school. And uh, I do recall, even back in high school, part of my thinking was, you know, if I can get into medical school, that's going to demonstrate that I must be okay. They don't let people who aren't okay get into medical school. Do they? I sure didn't think so. You know, they must have special tests. I heard how hard it was to get into medical school, so all those people that aren't good enough are, are going to be kept from going to med school. And uh, so that pretty much became my goal. I got into a, a good college and uh, went off there and applied myself fairly diligently to begin with. And uh, in college, well, there's a certain crowd there that has an affinity for drinking and drugging and things like that. And uh, so I had some exposure to those kind of chemicals. And uh, my first exposures were pretty intense. I discovered pretty much what I drank. I liked to drank to get drunk. And uh, I didn't see any other real purpose in uh, drinking other than to feel the buzz and the intoxication. But I was also still pretty disciplined at that point. And those kind of activities I only undertook if uh, the work was done, tests were over, things of that nature. Um, even so, after a series of tests in my freshman year, that's when I had my first blackout. Have no idea exactly how much I drank, other than I knew it involved a lot of beer and a lot of whiskey. And uh, then waking up in uh, in my dorm room, having thrown up all over the place, which did not make my roommate very happy. But uh, I chalk that down as something that I should probably learn from and watch out for in the future. And in college, too, I got uh, introduced to such fun substances as marijuana. That stuff I liked a lot. Um, again, though, uh, I was very controlled about how I used it. I would not uh, use it if there were tests coming up or work to be done or things of that nature. And everything seemed to me pretty much in control. So we did our work, we partied hard, which was pretty normative in college once the work was done and things moved on. But by the time I got to junior year in college, I noticed that my drinking and drugging pattern started deviating away from that of my peers, my friends, my roommates. Um, I was the one that started uh, drinking at night to help me fall asleep, smoking some extra marijuana because I wanted to feel the high, the buzz, the good feelings, things of that nature. And that's when I also began to hide what I was doing, too, because I started to recognize it really wasn't normal. And uh, I really did not want to look at that, and I didn't want my friends looking at it either. So I uh, avoided uh, their company and I started to drink in secret and smoke uh, pot in secret, and uh, still held up as best as I could on the academic side of things. And uh, that was when I was reintroduced to uh, to opiates again. Uh, I'd been busy at some athletic function, I was playing a racquetball with one of my friends, and strained my back. And, I was bitching about how my back hurt and how I was going to have to have uh, uh, another drink. So my back didn't hurt so much. And one of my friend's girlfriends who was uh, living with us at the time, she volunteered. Oh, hey, I've got something that's perfect for that. My dad, he's a doctor. He takes this all the time for her back, for his back. And uh, she handed me a Darvacet. And at that point in time, I really didn't know what it was. I thought it was kind of like an ibuprofen, something like that. And I was glad to take it and when it kicked in about 20 minutes later all that euphoric recall it had when I was 14 came back and the first words that came out of my mouth were wow what a great new recreational drug <laughs> and uh, well there weren't that many re- uh, ready at hand there for me to continue taking but um, I sure remember liking, a lot, liking it a lot and uh, wanting to get more of it um, at any rate, I finished out my uh, my college career drinking pretty regularly, smoking pot pretty regularly, and hiding um, a lot of my use from my friends because uh, I didn't want them to know just how much I was doing. And uh, ended up uh, going to medical school in the same town that I had uh, uh, gone to college in, living with pretty much the same bunch of people. And at that point in time, I thought, okay, I think it's really time to settle down, and now it's time to concentrate on studies, not smoke so much, not drink so much, um, and focus on getting back to work and getting back in the groove. Because my senior year in college, I'd, I'd played pretty hard. I had graduated in three and a half years, and made it my final semester was basically just devoted towards uh, drinking alcohol, smoking dope, and not doing a heck of a lot else. However, it was hard to make that transition in medical school and I never really did. Um, the drinking and smoking diminished uh, quite a bit, just because I needed to get to classes and do things, and I did that enough to keep up with the academic load. Um, but there was still a lot of uh, relief use going on that a lot of people, including uh, uh, my then fiancé and now wife really didn't know that much about. and. Uh, thought I kept things pretty well under control, and that was also the time too when I started going back to looking for opiates wherever I could find them, and that included things like uh, getting prescriptions for cough syrup from uh, doctors that I knew, getting prescriptions for painkillers for minor aches and pains here and there, episodic use. That was also when I started investigating the medicine cabinets of uh, friends of mine when we visited their homes. And uh, that was a painful memory for me, even at the time I was doing it. I felt a great deal of of uh, pain when I did it, but it never stopped me from doing it. And the best way to deal with that pain, as far as I was concerned, was to take drugs, drink on top of them, that would make those feelings go away. And uh, that's how I progressed through medical school and uh, gradually became a little bit better at conning different docs out of uh, prescription pharmaceuticals. still remember the first time I went to my surgical resident and said my back was hurting. he write me for some Darvacet. And said, oh, are you sure you want that? Percocet works much better. And, okay, well, sure, yeah, I'll take some of that. Um, you got to understand I was at medical school at uh, Johns Hopkins. In fact, uh, Dr. Kelvin Lim, he was a classmate of mine, just... Uh, he gave the talk earlier today across the hallway about uh, brain chemistry, uh, brain structure. Um, and Hopkins has a long and noble tradition of drug abuse, going back to uh, William Halstead, the father of American surgery. He was a cocaine addict before he helped uh, to establish Hopkins, and uh, Hopkins decided they didn't want a cocaine addict uh uh, in charge of the surgical program, so they sent him to what passed for a rehab institution there. and There they broke his cocaine addiction by treating him with morphine. Um, seems like a good deal. And uh, that tradition of using morphine certainly seemed to be uh, enshrined in a whole lot of uh, Hopkins graduates, including myself, and uh, I really leaned into it. Uh, I would uh, get prescriptions for... Uh, Percocet, Darvacet, whatever they were willing to give me wherever I could find them. And the use was at that point still pretty episodic. And while I know it had an impact on my ability to uh, really learn effectively and make good judgments about what I wanted to do with my career, still I made it through medical school and uh, set out to do my uh, residency. At that time I decided to go into family practice and come back to my home state of Wisconsin and got involved in the residency program in Milwaukee and really did pretty much focus on getting the work done um, and staying away from the opiates for oh about three or four months And uh, it all fell apart one day when uh, I was introduced to the sample cabinet at a residency program. And how that sample cabinet escaped my attention for the first three or four months, I really don't know. But as soon as it was pointed out to me, wow, Darvissat, Tussend, all these wonderful things that I just wanted to get my hands on and start experimenting with. And uh, at that point in time, it was like, okay, let's throw open the doors to the... uh, to the uh, candy store to me, and uh, I was on call every third night, so every third night I'd just, when there was time, I'd go down and explore what was available, and pretty soon I was using daily, and had been using daily for quite some time. As a result, my consumption of alcohol and pot went just about down to zero, but, um, uh... I did a whole lot of shopping around in those uh, drug cabinets and uh, getting close to drug reps too to find out what they had for me that uh, that I would enjoy. And I realized this wasn't normal, I realized it was the kind of thing that I really shouldn't be doing, yet despite all that, the easiest way to deal with those realizations was take more drugs. Then I didn't care, so I took more drugs. And then I discovered, gee, we had a multi-dose bottle of Demerol in the clinic. Now, that's interesting. I'd never tried IM Demerol before. And so I did. Yeah, I thought, that wasn't bad. But, you know, I've heard that IV route is a whole lot more direct. And just like that, I'd switched to IV. I'd gone from popping a few Darvisets as soon as I found them to literally just a couple of months later, shooting up IV Demerol every chance I got. Found a multi-dose bottle of Dilaudid that still had the narcotics tax stamp on it from... Probably was 20 years earlier, um, but I used that up quick too. And then I discovered that, you know, on the OB floors and surgical floors, even if they drained most of the morphine or Demerol out of the medications they uh, gave to the patients, there were a couple drops there. And if you poked through the the sharps disposal thing, they threw those little bottles of morphine and Demerol in there too. If you retrieve about 50 of those, you can get yourself a dose. So I'd creep into the OB ward at night. And I'd pop, learn how to pop the top off of those things, and then I'd go and assemble uh, my next dose. And I knew that was crazy, but I didn't care. I really did not. Um, I made several attempts to cut back and get things under control, and I would succeed for up two weeks at a time. <laughs> and by under control, I mean I would back off to, uh, I don't know if anybody re- remembers the medication, Tushinex, Hydrocodone, Polystyrex. Extended-release hydrocodone. What a great idea! Basically, one dose of that twice a day, and I was pretty even. Until I wanted more. But I did that for a while, and then all of a sudden, the drug reps couldn't keep up with me anymore, and uh, I was getting kind of funny looks cruising the surgical and the ER and the OB wards, you know, trying to rifle through their uh, discards. Um, so I started writing scripts for myself seems like a natural extension I started by writing scripts for DARBACet, but I quickly advanced to writing it for uh, Percocet Oxycodone um, and it was I think about the fifth script that I got busted on uh, the pharmacist wanted to call for confirmation and of course he couldn't get a confirmation on it And I dashed out of the pharmacy to go home and, and figure out what was going to happen next and the next day at work uh, this Vice uh, Detective from the Milwaukee Police Department comes to interview me. Wanted to talk about this script that I'd supposedly written under false pretenses. Well, I never was a real good liar, especially in the face of authority, so I pretty much spilled my guts to him, and uh, then I got myself arrested in my institution of training. That's a fun experience, getting read your uh, uh, rights in the same outpatient clinic room that you've been doing procedures in on people. Um, And the next thing you know, I am off to rehab. And that's when I met first Dr. Roland Harrington, who became like a god to me later on, uh, probably to the detriment of our relationship, but uh, he was a great man. And I went into treatment for the first time. That was back in 1984. Now, I really didn't want to stop drinking or using. I didn't think I had an alcohol problem. Uh, I admitted that drugs were kind of a problem, but that was because I'd just gotten hooked, and if I could just get some help getting off, things would be okay. I tried to get off. I tried to go through withdrawal, but I could never manage it for more than an hour or two before. Forget it. I need more of this stuff. So they put me into treatment. They detoxed me quickly with some methadone, and I was feeling pretty good, and I decided I was going to be the doctor that blows through that program in record short time because I had to get back to work. I had to get to back to being a doctor. So much of my identity was wrapped up in being a physician that if I couldn't be a physician, I wasn't anything. And uh, I figured the easiest way to do that in treatment was just give them what they wanted and let's tell them that I believed everything they said about me and would do whatever they wanted me to do. Um, well, they saw through that line of BS pretty quickly, and called me on my denial. And uh, I was not a happy camper in the first treatment at all. And as a result, instead of getting through in a record 26 or 27 days, I stayed for four months. <laughs> And uh, even then, I still did not get honest in treatment. I would not talk about my IV drug use at all, because that would make me a worse addict and alcoholic than just talking about my pill popping and my alcohol drinking. So that was a deep, dark secret. I admitted to no one. I managed, through dishonesty, to avoid taking a fourth and fifth step while staying. I had taken it. So that part wasn't done. All I wanted was to get through the process and get back to residency because I had certainly learned my lesson and wouldn't do that kind of stuff again. I did take some lesson out of uh, living with all those other addicts and alcoholics and recognizing that living clean and sober certainly was a lot more simple than my life had been before and that this was a more enjoyable and more pleasurable way. But I did not think that I needed to work all those steps to achieve that end. So got out, went back to residency, paid lip service to what I had to do, go to the professional groups, drop urine screens, um, go to counseling, go to meetings, and was in some sort of uh, compliance. And even I thought it was a good idea, yeah, help me stay clean and sober this way. Um, but because I had been fundamentally dishonest from the very beginning and really was not working the steps at all, I was just sitting there going through the motions, showing up where I was supposed to show up, it didn't last long. Um, interestingly, where it really fell apart for me was when I had a bad case of bronchitis and a terrible cough. It was about eight or nine months uh, dry at the time, and I knew I couldn't take codeine or other things like that, but I was just coughing my uh, brains out. And I even managed to get some samples of uh, an alcohol-free, antihistamine-free cough suppressant that was nothing but pure dextromethorphan. And I took a dose of that, that didn't help the cough. So I took a double dose of that, that didn't help the cough. Then I took about eight times the recommended amount, that didn't help the cough, but suddenly, I was high. And my third, first thought was, hey, I'm high. And my second thought was, I can't tell anybody about this. <laughs> and my third thought was, do they have more samples of this someplace? But then I thought, you can buy this over the counter. And I started using dextromethorphan regularly. It turned up in my urine screens, but nobody said a thing about it. So it must be okay, right? For the next couple of years, I used dextromethorphan off and on, and pretty much on, uh, until my residency was winding down. Uh, towards the end of my residency, I started popping some codeine tablets wherever I could find them, but it was mostly relapsing on dextromethorphan, and I didn't even recognize it as a relapse at the time. That's how clueless this addict brain of mine was. And to make matters worse, after leaving residency, I arranged to go into a practice, which was in uh, uh, the middle of a small town far away from any pharmacy, so I had a dispensary in my office. I moved into a practice where I had multi dose bottles of Demerol, giant bottles of Paragoric, that's opium dissolved in alcohol. What a combination! <laughs> <laughs> Diluted tablets, oxycodone, well, I crashed hard. I was using just like that again, shooting up Demerol all over the place, doing my best to hide it from uh, the family and from everybody around me. Um, all they saw was that I was isolated and quirky, but uh, and uh, a whole lot of my other basic character defects. Um, but that couldn't last very long, and it didn't. I tried a geographic escape going uh, on a vacation with... What uh, was supposed to be a tapering dose of uh, of opiates, um, so that was about a ten day trip, and on day three I'd gone through my entire planned ten day taper, and um, good planning that. I was always real good in that kind of planning, just very bad in the execution. <laughs> So there I am in Seattle, Washington, in withdrawal, staying with an old residency buddy of mine, who, of course, I immediately repay our old friendship by going into his drug cabinet and stealing his legitimate uh, prescriptions in there. And he uh, caught me at it and called me on it. And eventually I fessed up and I went back in for treatment again. Promptly got fired from uh, the job that I had had at that time, which, quite frankly, was a damn good thing. And went back into treatment and once again started minimizing everything about my whole relapse and things like that. I pretty much played it up as, oh, this was just a, a change in career, a lot of stresses on me. Uh, and geographic move wasn't uh, really plugged into the AA network there. That was all BS. I, yeah, I had not had a recovery program for a number of years. So they kept me for a longer time again, another four months, inpatient. I still didn't get honest. I did a third and fourth step, but they were or a fourth and fifth step, they were not honest fourth and fifth steps. And uh, eventually got back out uh with a desire to be sober, a desire to uh to work the steps better than I had before, but still the idea that if I was really honest, they'd hate me. Uh they'd think they'd really know what a terrible addict I was and I would not get to be a doctor again, especially when the board heard about this. I'd been a board case from the get-go, and it was still a board case, and destined to remain one for a long time, and uh, what happened at that point is, okay, I put myself on the shelf for a while, got out of treatment, uh, went to my first IDAA uh, in 87, and uh, was just about getting ready to go back to treatment again when I... Suffered a relapse on Valium, which just had inconveniently happened to be there where I could take it um, in my mother's medicine cabinet. This time, um, a little bit of shame associated with that too, but. Uh That was when I learned something from Roland Harrington that stuck with me afterwards. Um, Once I fessed up to that relapse, uh, to the Valium relapse, I I was expected to be yanked back into treatment for more work, more retooling, Uh, another lengthy punitive sentence, as it were. Uh, He just looked over the top of his glasses and growled at me like he does, and he says, relapse just means that you're not working a strong enough program of recovery to keep your disease in remission. Oh, that was a new thought. (laughs) You know, I'd only been at it for about three years at that time, and finally a new thought was starting to enter. I was starting to become teachable at that point. And uh, so he got me past that, and I did uh, end up joining a practice uh, in Milwaukee, a family practice, and started working there. But again, I had my secrets. I did not uh, stick Um, to rigorous honesty, and I did not work all the steps. I just kind of did what was conveniently in front of me at the time. Again, I wanted sobriety, but wasn't willing to go to any length to get it. And it wasn't long before I picked up dextromethorphan again, because, heck, they hadn't called me on that before. So it must be okay if I could start using dextromethorphan. Um, And eventually uh, that caused some quirky behavior and landed me back in treatment where I admitted to the dextromethorphan abuse. So, reeling slowly, slowly, all this crap out of me. And that time they only kept me three weeks, um, which was a mistake on their part, but that's just the way it worked out. (laughs) So I left there. Uh, My old employer actually took me back at that point, and I tried to get back into the stride pretty quickly. But things just weren't working, you know. Uh, I was miserable without the drugs, I was miserable when I was taking the drugs, meetings didn't seem to make me feel better, of course I really wasn't engaged in the program, I didn't talk to many people, I went, uh, I put on my smiling nodding cap, my compliance cap, and and time passed but I felt like hell, all the time. I could fake joy, but uh, that was about as far as it went. And it wasn't too long. I I remember just thinking, you know, life isn't worth living this way. I actually started thinking about ending it, about killing myself, Um, which shows how stuck and disturbed I was that I thought my only options at that point were either kill myself or use, not ask for help, even though I'd been surrounded by help for all those years. I decided that relapsing was better than killing myself, and... um, Started using again and uh, went down the tubes pretty quickly again, too. And uh, finally spotted on the fact that I had uh, fiddled with one of the urine screens, but uh, that kind of fiddling doesn't go undetected for long. And they pulled me in short and told me I needed to come back in for treatment. And at that point, again, I very seriously thought about, you know, is it worth it? Should I really go on anymore? Um, I had no great confidence that treatment could help me. Um, I was sure my license was gone, I was sure that my job was gone, I suspected that my wife and family could well be gone too over this one, and it seemed to me it might be just simpler if I died right there and then, took myself out of the equation. But something in my head at that time said, well, you know, you do have options. You can go to treatment, if that doesn't work out, you can always kill yourself later. And that made perfect sense to me. Uh, one of the few things that did at that moment in my life, So. Once again, I went back into treatment, and this time things were a little bit different. Um, even though it was the first thing I did in treatment after I got through the detox was start spinning things again. How could I make this sound the best to present to the, my board and my employer? And that lasted for about a week, you know, kind of how'd this happen? Well, this happened and that and, and you know, it was just too much stress on me. It was working a good program. Um, when Dr. Harrington held a special uh doctor's session there. We had our weekly doctors group on campus for doctors in treatment at the time. And the name of that uh group that day was Why Can't Scott Stay Sober? <sighs> and with him staring over the top of his glasses at me, going, huh? huh? So, what made you relapse this time, huh? Um, something started to give inside of me, and I finally started telling all of the secrets that uh, that I'd been holding in. My years of IV drug abuse, the fact that I had been pretty much relapsing all the time uh, during those six and a half years, that I'd never put together any decent sober time, and things started moving inside as a result. Um, that time, they assigned me to do a fourth step, but what I really ended up doing was made up what I call my lie list, um, which was every single lie about my using and the consequences of my using and drinking that I could think of, and that's what I gave at my fifth step. All the lies, all the things that I had hidden from uh, from folks in treatment, uh, all those times in the past, and I got that stuff out, and I finally realized at that point in my life, I didn't have any secrets anymore. And uh, I started feeling a little better. About that time, too, I was diagnosed as being dysthymic and having a, a depression at the time, and that got treated. And I think that also went a long ways for me finally starting to feel better in uh, in treatment. And after getting clean and cleaned out, getting the drugs and alcohol out of my system, I started to feel okay. I hadn't felt that way without the benefit of drugs or alcohol in an awful long time and they still weren't sure they could trust me and who could blame them so they decided to keep me 5 months instead of the routine 4 months and and I actually you know had a lot of ups and downs a lot of pain a lot of uh stress a lot of uh catharsis in treatment but I actually started enjoying myself and enjoying life and then it turned out well my job wasn't necessarily gone they were still willing to take me back in some capacity and the board wasn't even going to suspend my license, they were going to finish their investigation and decide what to do later. So about um, five months after I went in, I came on out, I went back to a job, I, I started working, I was going to meetings, I was talking, I was more plugged in with, uh, with uh, my AA peers than I'd ever been before, and it all seemed to be really working, I even felt good, I felt hopeful, I had not had hope in a long time um, and it was going alright and I thought, wow, this is great You know, I, they would not let me go back to my family practice uh, I went doing urgent care and other odd jobs for the organization and that was fine with me and that's how it went for the next three or four months going to a meeting a day, dropping urine screens three times a week um, and uh, life was good and I thought okay you know wow now I finally got it and that's when the testing really started Um, the test from HP the test from the board everything else because it was in February of of the next year I had relapsed in and gone into treatment in June of 90 and February of 91 my wife calls me up at work to inform me there was a registered letter from the medical examining board should she open it well I think you better (laughs) And uh, they'd suspended my license after they finished the investigation. And and there I was at work, and just after I got that news, my physician assistant wanders in. Scott, I need you to take a look at this patient. I can't? What? I can't? I I, I don't have a license. Uh, I thought I did, but now I don't. I've got to leave. There it was, the death penalty as far as I was concerned, the thing that I had put ahead of my recovery, the thing that I had... uh, Kept holding in front of me that I wouldn't let myself get honest for my medical license, my ability to be a doctor I'd put that ahead of all of um, everything else and I'd lost it so, what did I do? I went to a meeting Um, I went to a lot of meetings you know, we did all the things we needed to do talking to the attorneys, getting scheduled meetings etc, etc I just went to a meeting and I kept going to meetings and I kept going to meetings and it was a tough time, but life went on, and, and it wasn't the end of my world. Uh, I still had laughs. I still had uh, joy in my life. My wife my daughters are very important to me. And I suddenly realized that, you know, even if I don't get my license back, I'm going to have a life, and that it could be a good life. And I just grabbed onto that, and we went through the process, and the process was many, many hearings along the way. The board wanted this, the board wanted that, the board wanted uh, to have a special session, and we convened a special session. That's when I met with the special prosecutor of the board. Uh, he still has me on his speed dial on his telephone, by the way. Um, <laughs> Just talked to him last week, but, uh, at that time, you know, he greeted me as the guy that had to read all seven of my volumes of my rehab chart over the previous six and a half years, and he wasn't all that happy about having to have done that. Um, but, uh, we went to the hearing with the board, and, uh... He was advocating for continued suspension and have a regulatory law judge review my situation and not give the license back right away, or to give it back but with some conditions. Um, The board decided, no, they'll send it to regulatory law, and they'll just keep me suspended in the meantime. Uh, So that was a couple of months setting up where I went to a lot of meetings again. Then we had a meeting with a regulatory law judge, and the uh, board attorney listed all the reasons why I uh, should uh, be disciplined and My attorney tried to come up with a few why I should be allowed to practice and Then the regulatory law judge went away and uh, rendered his uh, decision. his decision was that he didn 't think I should have been suspended from practicing medicine. he thought I should have been revoked. <laughs> Fortunately, that was an advisory opinion, not uh, the, the weight of the law behind it. And uh, eventually, I met with the board again a couple months later. And at that time, I must say, the, uh, the board attorney actually said, he argued for my case. He said, I think this doctor can practice safely. Um, and my lawyer argued for my case, which was good. That's what I was paying him for. <laughs> And then they went to make their decision, and that's when the board discovered they didn't have a quorum, so they'd have to make the decision next month. But the next month came around, and here I'd been out of work at that time for about six months, Um, and they decided, okay, you can practice, we'll issue a license. And I'd gotten it back, and I had a job waiting to take me back at that point, too. Wow, what a great feeling. You know, here I finally overcome all those things that I put in front of me, you know, all the damage I'd done to myself, and I was moving on ahead. Of course, it didn't take but a week after that for the other shoe to really drop, something completely out of left field, something that didn't have anything to do with my drinking. My youngest daughter was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And there was something that wasn't my fault, had nothing to do with my disease, made me feel worse than anything else I'd experienced up to that time what did I do about that? I went to a meeting, went to a lot of meetings got through that too, we're still getting through that one day at a time so we're dealing with that, I'm working hard, as hard as I can and uh, moving ahead, And suddenly get the news, my mother dropped dead, this was two months after my daughter's uh, diagnosis and she was, you know, 62 unexpected completely, again the worst experiences I had in my life and it had nothing to do with me or my own behavior and I had to deal with it. I went to a lot of meetings. Some of those early meetings I couldn't even speak. I couldn't say a word. I just went to the meeting to be among you folks and uh, because I knew if I was there I'd be in a safe place. And we got past that and we moved along and I just kept doing the next right thing, going to lots of meetings, peeing on lots of cups. Uh, following good orderly direction from my addictionist and everybody else in my life. And things got better and better. I was being given more responsibilities at work, being made the head of particular task force and, and committees that were boring but important, and uh, starting to take a lot of satisfaction out of life. And uh, eventually my father passed away. That was expected. It was very hard, but the program stood me in good stead there got involved in founding the uh the Caduceus group in Milwaukee and uh and really got plugged in with AA uh very tightly with that and uh with a couple other guys that had entered my life I became uh, their sponsors and and finally I had closer relationships than I ever had previously in my life except with my wife and uh I was part of a community part of a fellowship part of sharing and interacting with other people and that's what I have uh, tried to preserve as we moved ahead. My father passed away. We moved and made it hard to get to some of my regular meetings, but still kept in touch with uh, with uh, the people on the program and still get to meetings. And uh, along the way, I finally did have to deal with another addiction. That was nicotine. I didn't come to nicotine until after I uh, my first treatment um, back in 86. When I was in rehab I got my hands on some of that new Nicorette gum that came out. I don't know why. Well, I know why. I'm an addict. It was there. I chewed it. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm chewing tobacco. That one stayed with me for a whole long uh longer set of years than uh, than the uh opiates and uh the alcohol did. That one I did not give up until 1997. You know, I did all those other things that uh that are out there to do. Uh did the gum. Well, that's what got me started. I tried going back to that, tried the patch. Um, But I found one chemical intervention that worked for nicotine for me. After I had it, I did not touch nicotine again. That was IV nitroglycerin. Anybody try that for nicotine? See, I was having chest pain at the time. (laughs) And they were giving me that while they're getting the cath lab set up. And ever since I had that IV nitroglycerin, I've not had to go back to nicotine either. <laughs> so, if any of you are really struggling, all I can tell you is that, that was my experience with it. So, got past my first heart attack too, and got off of the nicotine using the program. Oh, and that, uh, I did mention earlier that I'd been on TV twice during this whole thing. The first time was uh, one of those local news reports about how scandalized they were that the board actually allowed bad doctors to practice. and They read a list of names on TV, and there was my name and, and address and all that listed there, having been treated for drugs and alcoholism, and yet I had a valid license. Um... But after I'd been sober about five or six years, uh, that same station did another piece on bad doctors, but decided to add some balance and contrasted them against doctors that are doing well, and that was when I got another call from my friend, the prosecuting board attorney. The TV uh, station had talked to him, and he referred—he wanted to know if it was okay to refer them to me. So they did a piece on me as being a doctor that has sobered up and was doing well. And that was kind of nice. a little bit of closure to that earlier pain and shame and, and uh, it did show me that uh, good things can happen if we persevere that way and since then a lot of changes have gone on Um my organization that I worked for collapsed, went bankrupt was picked up by uh, one of the big medical conglomerates in my area and I decided I really did not care to uh, work with them so I made a a very different job change. Uh, I went into corrections medicine Right now, I work in the center of a maximum security prison, <laughs> and I've been doing that for about four years now, and it's been very good for me professionally. It's been very good for me from a uh, point of view of uh, an attitude of gratitude, and reinforcing my own recovery because 70% of my patients now have drug and alcohol issues, and I've talked to a lot of these guys, and I think my God, you know, for the but for the grace of my higher power. Uh, I would be where they are. Um, you know, these days, if you get caught with 50 pills, that means you're a dealer. doesn't matter where they came from or anything like that. If they weren't prescribed to you, you're a dealer if you have 50 pills. Um, I I never had less than 50 pills laying around. <laughs> and I sure didn't plan to deal them to anybody but myself.
1: <laughs>
0: so... It's been a real eye-opening experience. It's good to deal with that raw denial, too. Early on in my prison career, I was interviewing one of the new intakes and and taking history from him, and he talked about his drinking a little bit. And I said, oh, are you an alcoholic? He said, oh, no, no. Well, is alcohol the reason that you're in prison? Oh, no, Doc, not at all. You see what it is. um, I was at my son's, and I just had a 12-pack, and I was driving home because it was just two miles, and they pulled me over, but the taillight was burnt out and I blew a .26 and since it was my fifth OWI they sent me right back to prison but it wasn't from the alcohol it was from the burnt out (laughs) taillight and he was sincere at least as sincere as I'd ever been when I made up my excuses and just recently I had uh, another guy, uh, he was back for a parole violation and he was gonna have to do two more years in prison because he violated the terms of his parole. And I said, well, what'd you do? He said, I had a drink. Oh, so you knew that if you took a drink you could come back to prison for two years? Yeah, that's right. Gee, are you an alcoholic? No, doc, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, you know, if you're an alcoholic I could understand doing that kind of thing because alcoholism is a disease. And you can't help yourself but uh, engage in that kind of behavior if your disease hasn't been treated. But if you do that and you're not an alcoholic, the only thing I can think of is that you're really stupid. (laughs) And he looks up at me and says, Doc, I'm not an alcoholic. At that point, I knew it was time for me to retreat and go on to other issues like his diabetes and hypertension. (laughs) But that is my life these days. Um, It's been quite a few 24 hours. My sobriety birthday is June 20th, 1990. And uh, for somebody that people thought, Scott just can't get sober, and for the longest time me thinking, hey, I just can't get sober... Uh, These last number of years have been a real eye-opener. These last 16 years have been an invitation to join the human race and be fully participatory in that experience. And there's a lot of times I don't want to participate. There's a lot of times I just want to isolate and be in my cave, be in my shell. But my friends drag me out. I talk to somebody on the program just about every day. They call me up. I call them up. Um, it's a gift. It's a gift for my higher power. And uh, I don't define my higher power. I'm not sure who I'm praying to when I'm praying or who I'm thanking. All I know is when I stay in touch with my higher power, when I work these steps, when I do the things that uh, the steps in the program and you people tell me to do, I can live a life that is happy, joyous, and free. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to have that life because that seems so unattainable for so long. And I would like to thank you all for being here for me. I would like to say to you all that I love you all and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. (laughs)